Hello and welcome to Tabling the Podcast. My name is Ariana Karp and I'm joined here by a wonderful group of actors that is going to take us on a journey through the first act of Shakespeare's King Henry V, parts one, two, and three. No, there's only one part, but um, King Henry V, big old play. I always like to start these with learning who are our players, where are they, and what do they, what, is, what are their feelings, what, what is their history with this play? So let's start with Amy. Tell us, tell us all those things, please. Okay. My name, my name is Amy Mylander, and I'm in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Um, and for this recording, I'm various and sundry. Um, parts, Ambassador and Mountjoy and Williams and Hostess and such. Um, I've seen the play several times. Um, the most memorable for me was when the um, RSC, I had the opportunity to go to Stratford-upon-Avon when they did the history straight through in three days. Um, I, I was lucky enough to go. I had no idea the incredible work that I was going to see. I was blown away. And so it was two to three plays a day and it was fabulous. And Henry V, the staging was incredible. And when we get into it, I'll, I'll share a little bit about how they staged it um, because it was really, really quite brilliant. Fantastic. Thank you, Amy. Nice. Hi everyone, I'm Nas. I'm currently in Philadelphia where it is snowy. Um, and I am playing Brittany, Exeter, French soldier and queen of France. So yeah, just a hodgepodge of, of French people and, and some British people. Uh, um, and I don't have much of a connection to Henry V. The only connection I have to Henry V is in undergrad freshman year, we had to say certain monologues while like working out. So for a musifier, we had to do while um, jumping rope. So I feel a little nauseated when I read it, but like other than that, <laughs> I really have no connection to it. So I'm excited to delve in, especially after working on Richard II. So excited to see where the bloodline goes. <laughs> Yes. And you got to be a part of the original sin um, <laughs> that we're making up for in this play. So I'm so thrilled you're with us. Thank you, Zoe. Hello. Um, I am also from Santa Fe, New Mexico, like Amy. And Santa Fe represent, I am also doing a bunch of random things, um, Bates, Bourbon, Burgundy, Gower, Scroop, and Warwick. So that's very exciting and fun. And I don't have a lot of connection to this play in particular, but I do have connections to plays prior. I was in the Richard II uh, reading here with the Shakespeare Radio Lab, which was wonderful. And then I was in the production of Henry IV Part One, which I directed for the International Shakespeare Center. My husband, who was Hal in that production, is Hal in Henry IV Part Two for the Radio Lab. And so now I'm getting to see finally the conclusion of all of it. So that's really cool. Excellent. Yes. You see the final chapter of the story. Um, wonderful. Uh, Zunum. Hi, um, I'm Zunum Danai. Um, I, um, I also have not really seen this play staged. Um, this is kind of my first encounter with this play. And we are in Ontario, Canada, by the way, <laughs> in, by a 
by Georgian Bay. And uh, so, yeah, I've, I've really enjoyed kind of getting to know it through the characters I'm doing, which is um, the Bishop of Eli, uh, Catherine, I do the messenger uh, and a boy and the herald. So it's kind of it's kind of nice to kind of piece it together through the dialogues rather than knowing the whole play at large. <laughs> Wonderful. And Esther, would you like to go as well? Yes. Um, like Zunum, I never have seen a stage production of this history play either. Um, but in acting school for voice class, we did have to learn the, the text of now entertain conjecture of a time when creeping murmur and the pouring. Well, we did that for a year in all different ways in voice class. And then also for a while, um, I used to live in Mexico and I had a little art video shop there. And one of the videos that we had there was Kenneth Branagh's Henry V. And so I saw the film there <laughs> and um, I had a little boy, Zunum's older brother, and I wanted him to learn English. And <laughs> this seemed the perfect um, video to do that because it's all full of guy things and, and very nice sort of um, very elegant English. <laughs> so Basically, I made him watch it every day for three years, and he <laughs> speaks English now. So that's Does it. he speak an iambic pentameter? I am dying to know. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you will hear him. And I'm doing the Archbishop of Canterbury and the Duke of Orleans. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Andrew. Hi, everybody. I am Andrew. I'm coming to you from the southwest corner of the state of New Hampshire in the United States. Uh, we call this the Monadnock region after the, um, the, there's a big mountain, it's not a huge mountain, but a little mountain that uh, is all alone here, towering above the rest of the um, landscape. And uh, it's called Monadnock. And, and I guess there are other mountains in the world in a similar kind of situation, which have been named uh, Monadnocks after the Monadnock. That's where I live. Uh, my, I'm playing uh, uh, the king. Um, the, gosh, this play, I, I realized uh, just now that I have not ever seen either of those two famous film versions. Uh, I think I've seen it, uh, readings of it, heard readings of it, or, or seen other um, kind of TV uh, film presentations. Um, but I do have a kind of nice um, memory connection to it. This was actually the third Shakespeare play that I ever um, uh, played in as an actor. And um, my introduction to Shakespeare was very quick. I was in undergrad uh, in college and um, I was cast in a play for the fall. And that summer, the director of the fall play asked us to come out and also play in her summer uh, play, which was As You Like It with her professional company. So I did As You Like It, then Midsummer Night's Dream, and then was invited back to the same 
professional company to do Henry V in the spring. And I really still had no idea what was going on. So, um, and I haven't played in it since then. So this is, the play is kind of a, a bit of a mystery to me, but has that uh, foundational quality to it. Um, I still feel as if I, I don't really know what's going on, but I'm very excited to re-engage with it after uh, quite an absence. Wonderful, thank you. Colin, please. Hello, I'm Colin. Um, I currently live in Madison, Wisconsin. Um, I am playing, goodness, I don't have a list with me, but I think it's a uh, Salisbury Gray question mark, um, Alice and uh, Dauphin. And um, I'm also pretty fresh new to this particular play. Um, I think in my undergrad Shakespeare course, um, we did uh, four comedies, four tragedies, but then we all each had to do an individual um, play that we um, presented to the class. So a very uh, unexcited individual presented on it at one point to me. Uh, so that's that's about my experience, but um, Izzy and I have been uh, watching the Brandon version as a, a loose introduction and uh, reading from, uh, what, what text do you? Oh, we, we've been reading a few different stuff online and books and stuff. <laughs> Fabulous. Wonderful. Um, Izzy, please introduce yourself. Um, hi, I'm Izzy. I'm Ariana's sister, and I'm also in Madison, Wisconsin. Um, I guess my biggest intro to this play was probably, you know, loving the histories and loving Henry IV Part One and Part Two, and so seeing those characters go through the rest of their lives through this play. And of course, I probably knew some of the chorus speeches and Henry's speeches before I actually had read the play or seen it at all. Uh, we've watched the brand one again recently. Um, I've watched a few of the other versions, but I don't think I've ever seen it on stage. And yeah, knowing the chorus speeches so well does make me a little nervous to be doing the chorus right now, but I'm doing chorus and Mike Morris because I needed them to rhyme, I guess. Uh, but yeah. Thank you, Izzy. I also wanted you to be the Irish captain because you just spent a whole bunch of time in Ireland. Um, <laughs> Um, and that, that leaves, uh, myself, um, I am not reading any characters, but I am so thrilled to be able to bring these people together and, um, just generally be a, a nerd in the room, um, as we go through this play. I am coming to you from Northern California, in rural Northern California, between the redwoods and the ocean. It's very beautiful here. My experience, this is of all the plays that we've done so far, this is the first one I have never acted in or, or directed in any capacity. Um, although it's the one I have seen probably more than any other. My first, I, I, I liked, uh, Andrew, your word foundational. Um, my first ever acting experience was playing Prince Hal, who's the young Henry V in Henry IV part one when I was 13. It was my first Shakespeare, my first acting, all, all, the, all the things. So it's, it's always been a very, very near and dear um, to my heart play. Um, and then I did eventually get to play Prince Hal in Henry IV part two. But I actually, within the last five years, I think I've seen about five stage productions of Henry V all very, very different. I saw um, Jude Law play Henry V on the West End about five years ago, which was a interesting 
uh, that wonderful word that covers all manner of sins. Um, it was an interesting production. I thought the scene that he nailed, and I've never seen anyone quite do it like that, was the wooing scene because he was just his sort of remarkably charming self. And it was it was very it was a very cool thing to behold. I saw uh, in total contrast to that. I I was lucky enough to see one of my favorite um, Shakespeare sources in in New York City, which is the the public theater's mobile unit, which sort of takes the uh, plays, cuts them to about ninety minutes, and performs them with little to no set all over New York in prisons, in community centers, in libraries, and homeless shelters. And there's some of the clearest and most engaging Shakespeare that I've ever um, been privileged enough to witness. And their Henry V was was really dark. It was a very it was a a deep dive into entitlement and power and masculine power. Um, and it was, it left me a little bit shaken, to be honest. Um, and that was kind of my last encounter with it. I, I watched Laurence Olivier and Kenneth Branagh's films of Henry V when I was very young, I think a little too young. And I was very similarly, like very disturbed by the violence. And then I also watched The Hollow Crown's Henry V when that came out with um, Tom Hiddleston. And I, I thought that was really, it was really interesting and such a different take on, on the character as well. But I've, I've never really gotten to dig my hands into this play and get, get, get them all dirty and nice and messy. So um, I'm really thrilled that we get to go on this, this journey together um, to use an over, uh, overused phrase. Um, and I guess without further ado, shall we just get right to it? Um, this I have so we start off very unusually for Shakespeare. We don't frequently have a lot of prologues. We, you know, the, the ones that are there are, tend to be quite famous, Romeo and Juliet, which incidentally is not in the folio. So who knows if that was actually even written by Shakespeare. And uh and here we have this this chorus and a very different chorus from the 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 prologue to Henry the Fourth Part Two, which listeners you will have heard, which is essentially um, where the figure of rumor appears, a very unreliable narrative source, and um, essentially gets to tell us lies and tell us that he or she will be lying to us frequently. Um, which is a very different way to start than this particular prologue in this chorus. Um, so for each little French scene, um, by which I mean a scene where a character enters uh, or characters are there and no one enters or exits, that's kind of how I divide up these um, scenes. And so this one I have, and I try and give them little titles. Sometimes they're more useful than other times, but this one I have called ciphers. So with that in mind, Isabel, will you take us away with ciphers? Oh, for a muse of fire that would ascend the brightest heaven of invention, a kingdom for a stage, princes to act, and monarchs to behold the swelling scene. Then should the warlike Harry, like himself, assume the port of Mars, and at his heels, leashed in like hounds, should famine, sword, and fire crouch for employment. But pardon, gentles all, the flat, unraised spirits that hath dared on this unworthy scaffold to bring forth so great an object. 
Can this cockpit hold the vasty fields of France? Or may we cram within this wooden O the very casks that did affright the air at Agincourt? Oh, pardon, since a crooked figure may attest in little place a million, and let us ciphers to this great account on your imaginary forces work. Suppose within the girdle of these walls are now confined two mighty monarchies, whose high uprearded and abutting fronts the perilous narrow ocean parts asunder. Peace out our imperfection with your thoughts into a thousand parts defied one man and make imaginary puissance. Think when we talk of horses that you see them printing their proud hooves of the receiving earth. For tis your thoughts that now must deck our kings, carry them here and there, jumping o'er times, turning the accomplishment of many years into an hourglass. For the witch supply, admit me chorus to this history, who prologue-like your humble patience pray, gently to hear, kindly to judge our play. Wonderful. Thank you, Izzy. Tell us about this, this speech and the sort of um, experience of reading this speech. And do you get a sense of who this chorus figure is? I suppose it's really whoever's playing it. But what are your thoughts about this speech? I think, well, first of all, it's so iconic that like you're just yeah. kind of like, oh, <laughs> right away. But um, I think it's, it's funny. It's such a trope of plays from this time period as well as later for a prologue or an epilogue to like neg the, <laughs> the what it's about to present or what it's already present like it's it's not great it's not perfect but like please still like it and I always yeah. think that's funny but it's saying that in a much more refined obviously confident way um, I really think that um it's interesting he is or they are rather presenting it as the official history within this, just yeah. um, very confident in that, even if they're saying, you know, it's not, it's not exactly, you know, it's not real, but it is, yeah. and it, you know, you can make it that. And it, it's almost like the character has confidence in you, the listener, uh, but at the same time, still a little bit unreliable, I think. <laughs> <laughs> I really, I really like that is about the um, putting that we put we put our trust in the audience like that 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 is a really interesting active engagement with with our audience of course our audience they who hear us right this all important concept people who watch TV are viewers people who go to the theater are an audience they're there to hear a play. Yeah, uh, you made me hear, and thank you for that, that I had missed marking up one of the antitheses, many antitheses that, that happen in here. And antitheses, again, is just a very complicated sounding phrase for when we are holding two things in comparison. Um, it's not really opposites, because frequently they aren't. It's usually comparing of two things. Uh, so for example, the one, Izzy, that you, uh, in the way that you read it, you realized, you made me realize that I had missed marking it up was our imperfections, your thoughts, right? Those are not exactly opposites, but they're being held up in a sort of similar balanced, interesting way. To quote John Barton, Shakespeare thought antithetically. So it's like one of the best things we can do is to find those antitheses and to really play them for all they're worth. 
Um, the other thing that's, that strikes me about this that, and which is why I, I frequently, if I'm teaching Shakespeare, will use this um, is the imagery is so intense and rich. And there is one bit that I, I never until very recently actually understood what assume the port of Mars meant. So Mars, as we, we sort of know from previous um, discussions is the Roman god of war who makes quite an appearance in this play. <laughs> um, but port here, I sort of thought to be like destination or um, home or just like dwelling place of Mars. But port in this sense meant comportment as in demeanor or the way someone stands or the, the, the way that they walk, right? We've mentioned this before. Shakespeare seemed to have an obsession with recognizing people by the way that they walk. I know him by his gait, right? So there's an interesting, it's like, it's like we're, we're gonna know, we're gonna know this Harry, this warlike Harry by the way that he com comports, carries himself that it is equal with the God of war. And then of course, you know, the think when we talk of horses that you see them to me is just maybe one of my favorite lines in Shakespeare. Um, well, and the, the following line, the printing their proud hooves in the receiving earth. I was wondering Zunum if, cause you're working with horses right now, if you had like a, a new perspective on that. <laughs> very, it's a very poetic way to put it. <laughs> <laughs> When, when you actually approach a hoof, it's this big, heavy, sharp, filthy, um, necessary part of an animal in it. You, you, I don't know. It's, uh, it's very beautiful to think of them as digging into the earth. <laughs> but um, I don't think of that when I'm near them. Uh, maybe I'll try. <laughs> I love it. Um, did, did anyone else have any sort of observations or, or questions or comments uh, about this first speech? Yeah, I find it, uh, it's interesting. It reminds me a lot of a few different parts of Midsummer Night's Dream. Uh -huh. uh, you very much have that cleanse if we offend, it is with our goodwill, you know, all yeah. of that with Pyramus and Busby. <laughs> and then even a little bit of Puck's speech too, you know, if we shadows have offended at the end, it's like, we're doing the best we can. We're going to try to tell you the story. Hope you like it. You know, yeah. <laughs> same sense. Absolutely. It is, it is an interesting um, relationship to set up with the audience to be sort of constantly apologizing for how, which we're going to see the chorus do, like one of my favorite, right before Agincourt is going to be like, we're going to make a really ridiculous show in a, in a couple minutes here in Brawl Ridiculous with four or five most vile and ragged foils, the name of Agincourt. You know, it's like there, there is such a like, we're quite low budget, which I think is wonderful because it just works for much many more theaters of like, just use your imagination, right? Like we don't need a fancy set, just use that imagination and we'll be, we'll be all good. Um, <laughs> yeah. Speaking of, uh, Ariana, if I may. Yeah, please. Um, uh, you reminded me that what I love so much about this speech is how, um, how precisely it describes what for me is the core of the theatrical act, this, this um, collaboration between the company and the audience in yeah. creating the 
belief and the truth of whatever the piece of drama is that you're working in. Um, that so many of these lines are are like instruction manuals uh, yeah. for how to create theater, um, piece out our imperfections uh, yeah. into a thousand parts, divide one man. It's really great. Um, and I actually i've I've found it helpful as a as a tool uh, when talking to particularly young people who may not have much exposure to theater and um, are more familiar with film, where you can see everything, where you can hear everything, and it's very um, rich in terms of what the actual image is. Uh, coming to theater can be a little, well, confusing yes. <laughs> in that there is no, um, sometimes it is a bare stage, but yeah. this uh, this is like a guidebook into how we how I like to produce theater in any case. Something that really jumped out for me this time, uh, and thank you, Izzy, was um, prologue-like. Yes. Uh, and it's interesting that, uh, you know, th this is called the prologue in the folio, I think. Yes, But yeah. uh, in their in their own words, they are prologue-like, <laughs> not actually a prologue. <laughs> We're not quite good enough to be a prologue. <laughs> like... <laughs> It, it is, seems that very is. much, it seems very much on that same of like, well, not quite, like, I don't know, but also like there's a weird confident undertone to it. So it's a little like, you're like, what message am I supposed to be getting here? But I think that's part of it is because you have two things at odds of trying to make this feel real, but it's also not real. So yeah. it makes sense that you have that kind of up against each other, the confidence plus the like, but I'm not, uh, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think, Izzy, you know, you pointing that out is also making me realize that this kind of very self-conscious of the audience writing is something that you you find in the pro in all the prologues and the few epilogues in Shakespeare, but also in the sonnets. You know, there's a lot of sort of very um, self-referential writing about, you know, I remember <laughs> the only reason I know this is Sonnet 55 was because we turned it into a song and it was Sonnet 55. And it was like, there, like one of the, one of the lines in there is like, not, oh God, I can't remember nothing. Essentially the, 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 the way the line ends is nothing shall outlive this powerful rhyme. And it's like, so daring. And so like, I am so much better than all y'all like it's an incredible and incredibly confident um sort of declaration of the power of the pen in that and then like you know in the next sonnet it'll be something like oh i'm the worst i'm horrible i'm not worthy you know and i i kind of it's interesting that we can we can hold those two sort of antithetical ideas about the identity of this chorus uh this prologue within one speech it's quite it's quite fun and actually quite human i think um if it was just humble it wouldn't be quite as interesting like i think even in those like zoe you were mentioning the the prologues in in the the pyramus and thisbe that's just like written appallingly but in this very appallingly beautiful way that you know if if we offend it is with our goodwill like we, we will offend you but we're doing it with the best intentions um and and that there's comedy infused to that and that there's there's an interesting 
duality between the we're going to show you amazing things, but also we're going to need to rely on you because actually we don't have a huge budget. You know, they're, they're like those two, those two things holding together are, are quite fun, are quite fun to hold. So, so what a imaginative beginning. And then I think we're, we're very quickly going to transition into being thrown. I really feel like this first scene kind of takes you by the scruff of the neck and just throws you into the world of politics and power at this time. And so this whole next, the, the first scene, one, one, which is with the Archbishop of Canterbury and the Bishop of Ely, um, or Eli, I'm not sure exactly how to pronounce that, uh, is, is one scene, which is extraordinary. Um, and so I have named, I have titled this one, The Bill and the King. Um, and so Zunum and Esther, I'm so excited. This is our first ever mother-daughter duo doing a scene. This is just yeah, thrilling to me. Um, so have fun. And at any point, if you would like to stop and talk through something, please feel free to do so. And if not, we can wait until you have finished the scene. So have fun. My Lord, I'll tell you that self-bill is urged, which in the 11th year of the last king's reign was like, and had indeed gainst us past, but that the scambling and unquiet time did push it out of further question. But how, my lord, shall we resist it now? It must be thought on. If it pass against us, we lose the better half of our possession, for all the temporal lands which men devout by testament have given to the church would they strip from us, being valued thus, as much as would maintain to the king's honor full 15 earls and 1,500 knights, 6,200 good esquires, and to relief of Lazars and weak age of indigent faint souls past corporal toil, a hundred almshouses, right well supplied, and to the coffers of the king beside, a thousand pounds by the year. Thus runs the bill. This would drink deep. T'would drink the cup and all. But what prevention? The king is full of grace and, and fair regard. And the true lover of the holy church. The causes of his youth promised it not. The breath no sooner left his father's body, but that his wildness, mortified in him, seemed to die too. Yea, at that very moment, consideration, like an angel came and whipped the offending Adam out of him, leaving his body as a paradise. To envelop and contain celestial spirits never was such a sudden scholar made. Never came reformation in a flood with such a heady current scouring mm. faults, nor never hydra-headed willfulness so soon did lose his seat, and all at once, as in this king. We are blessed in the change. Hear him but reason in divinity, and all admiring with an inward wish you would desire the king were made a prelate. Hear him but debate of commonwealth affairs, you would say it hath been all in all his study. List his discourse of war, and you shall hear a fearful battle rendered you in music. Turn to 
any cause of policy, the Gordian knot of it he will unloose, familiar as his God, that when he speaks the air, a chartered libertine is still, and the mute wonder lurketh in men's ears to steal his sweet and honeyed sentences, so that the art and practique part of life must be the mistress to the steric which is a wonder how his grace should glean it, since his addiction was to courses vain, his companies unlettered, rude, and shallow, his hours filled up with riots, banquets, sports, and never noted in him any study, any retirement, any sequestration from open haunts and popularity. The strawberry grows underneath the nettle, and wholesome berries thrive and ripen best neighbored by fruit of baser quality. And so the prince obscured his contemplation under the veil of wildness, which no doubt grew like the summer grass, fastest by night, unseen, yet crescive in his faculty. It must be so, for miracles are ceased and therefore we must needs admit the means how things are perfected. But my Lord, how now for mitigation of this bill, urged by the commons, doth his majesty incline to it or no? He seems indifferent, or rather swaying more upon our part than cherishing the exhibitors against us, for I have made an offer to his majesty upon our spiritual convocation mm -hmm. and in regard to causes in hand, now in hand, which I have opened to his grace at large as touching France to give a greater sum than ever at one time the clergy yet to his predecessors part withal. How did this offer seem received, my lord? With good acceptance of his majesty, save that there was not time enough to hear, as I perceived his grace would fain have done, the severals and unhidden passages of his true titles to some certain dukedoms and generally to the crown of and seat of France, derived from Edward, his great-grandfather. What was the impediment that broke this off? The French ambassador upon that instant craved audience. And the hour, I think, is come to give him hearing. Is it four o'clock? It is. Then go we in to know his embassy, which I could with a ready guess declare before the Frenchmen speak a word of it. I'll wait upon you and I long to hear it. Wonderful. Thank you both so much. Um, tell me about the, wh what are your impressions of these characters so far? What are, what are your, any observations about either the language or the, or the characters? Well, actually, um, Sunum told me something very interesting as we were practicing this a little bit that I hadn't really considered, that the Archbishop of Canterbury actually has the word of God for mm. the community in general. So he is very used to actually not having to work too hard to convince people of things <laughs> because he kind of has, you know, 
he kind of has the word of God. So like, why would you doubt what he says? You know, and after many years of being in this position, I think it would, um, you know, things creep up into our character and, and we start to believe things that are pretty preposterous just out of habit. Yes. Oh, I love that. I love that because it, it is interesting. You're, you're in a bit of a tight spot at the very top of the scene, right? I mean, if this bill passes, this is going to be very bad for the power and the, uh, the purse, essentially, of the clergy. And I, I love that idea that you're, 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 in a sense, not used to having to, to, you know, essentially beg for anything because it's kind of, you're very easy to persuade people because you are the authority in this and this, um, which is, that's wonderful. Um, uh, Zunu, any, any uh, feelings about the, the bishop? and his strawberry metaphors. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, <laughs> I, um, it's, it's kind of uh, interesting that the, the examples and the comparisons that go on between these two in the scene and in the next are so um, innocent at times, like, like bees and uh, plants and seasons and, you know, and we're talking about warring empires <laughs> yes exactly. and, uh, a very fine kind of point between yeah like um uh them being worried and and trying to face the fact that they're in a tight spot and also them following their spiritual way of life and also kind of um having to hold that that point that pause of of spirituality and so it's funny how they have to step in to both you can't you can't uh be realistic and also holistic at the same time sometimes mm. i get that impression that, that they like fall into this ambition and then they have to also still um get back to to what is holy and so yeah it's an interesting and, and also, balance you know, I'm so sorry, Zunim. What was that? What that that last part? And I guess just uh, thinking of their their age and thinking about how to confront the 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 age of the, a lot of these young men um, and historic lands, you know, that have yeah. a lot of history, and that that's what they're disclosing is the history of the place. And, but I mean, Eli or Eli is seems to me just like a stone there you know he's yeah. just really just um <laughs> part of the representation absolutely it, it's interesting to me uh, that it's two members of the church that are the ones who are the most instrumental in persuading henry that he needs to go invade france i mean that's kind of extraordinary for to think about a, a, these the heads of the church as as re really being the ones that are pushing this argument for him to pursue this title in France. Yes, I, I have a question. Oh yes, please. In the next scene, the Archbishop um, speaks publicly, yes. whereas in this scene, it's an intimate tete-a-tete -tete with one of his colleagues. Yes. So we wanted to contrast, you know, intimacy and, you know, public speaking. So I wondered if I was um, too loud in this scene, if I can speak much quieter 
I'm unfamiliar I, with the um, technology of oh, yeah. Zoom. Oh, it is. I am. It is amazing how much editing I'm going to be doing for all of these episodes just from, you know, like different sound levels because everyone has a slightly different sound level and I want it to all kind of be together. Um, I think if that is your inclination, absolutely um, feel free to to play with that. I think that is such a wonderful observation as <laughs> as Zoe said when we were doing Richard II. Um, as, as a director, I, I tend to be very, um, something I really like focusing on is distinguishing the public moments and, between, and the private moments. And then also those magical moments Shakespeare gives us when someone has a very private moment in a public space, which are usually the most revealing big moments in, the, in these plays is when someone has this has a, something happens to them in a, in a public space. Um, that makes everyone else either uncomfortable or changed in, in some way. Um, but I, I love that, that that is absolutely correct that, that there, is, there, is a, there is a difference between these two first scenes, even though there's a, both of you are in, in both of those scenes. Um, I also just wanted to bring Andrew into this conversation because this is like one of the craziest character setups before you see the character that I can kind of recall in, in a Shakespeare play, like, like, like kind of, if you were, if you were playing Henry V, like, how would you enter after this incredible amount of like praise and, 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 all of this sort of detailing of your personal history, which was during Shakespeare's time quite legendary and, and probably had very little basis in fact. Right, right. <laughs> well, I, I mean, for me personally right now, it's very interesting to uh, rehear these lines having just come from Henry IV part one um, and recording that episode where we get to see Hal and, and actually experience that younger a uh, wild guy. And so I, th that got me thinking about the setup for the audience who m would have seen the previous play and uh, how efficiently they allow for the character to completely change, um, how, how efficiently Shakespeare allows for the character to completely change if that's the desired effect uh, from the actors and, and the company. The um, yeah, I don't know how you you follow this kind of language with an entrance, um, <laughs> but you know it's like that. Uh, it reminds me kind of of a um, uh, of a Greek play or something where you you describe this character as the hero or, or even godlike, and then some poor schmuck of an actor has to walk on and <laughs> and represent um, what you've brought out in those words. Yeah. Which, which, you know, if we follow the, the chorus and we're asking the audience to create this picture in their mind and the truth of this guy who, who can debate uh, theology with members of the church, um, their imagination may create a really uh, powerful vision of, of the king. And then, mm. uh, yeah, like I said, some guy has to come in and be like, hey, I'm... <laughs> I'm the king. I, I, you know, you have to hold up that contrast, though, and that's also what he's doing. Is here's this um, 
picture from the outside from a very specific point of view. Mm-hmm. And then immediately in, in the scene, we go into seeing the reality as portrayed. Uh, so that I'm sure has been written for that effect of the, the ideal from the outside and then to see him embodied, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I, I love this notion because wildness, that particular word is going to crop up in this place so many times. Um, in fact, it will make an appearance, a couple appearances, I believe in the next scene, maybe just one. And that wildness, um, as, as you're going to say at the, at the very end of this act, you know, he, the, the, the problem with the, the Dauphin and his mock is that he, he didn't measure what use you made of your wildness, right? Which is kind of a precursor to what these, what the, these ecclesiastical authorities are saying and what the Bishop of Ely is saying with that wonderful strawberry nettle, <laughs> um, which is yeah, not a smoothie yeah. I would like to have i think I, I i think i'll pass on the stinging nettle <laughs> strawberry smoothie but the strawberry growing underneath the nettle that like there is something there is knowledge to be gained from the nettle as it were <laughs> which is right. i think what um and and having literally it's just worked on oh yeah please 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 it is absolutely true oregano grows much better underneath zucchini plants Oh, um, wow. And it's a plant that loves to grow in the sun. There but, you go. And fertile and you know, soil. This is the, the nature and the garden metaphors run all through these plays about gardening being akin to governing, which is wonderful. And, and you know, the Bishop of Ely in Richard III has a whole bit about strawberries where he goes away during a scene to go show someone his strawberries. And when he comes back, he realizes someone's been is about to be executed while he was just getting his strawberries. So it seems like, <laughs> I'm sure, I don't know if that's steeped in fact and that the historically all the bishops of Ely like did something with strawberries, but I think it's funny that it crops up in two plays, um, just kind of out of nowhere. I, I, I have but, forgotten. Yeah. <laughs> I had forgotten about that other Bishop of Ely and his strawberries. That's, that's How kind can of anyone amazing. forget? <laughs> Maybe it's like their emblem. There you go, their mascot. Uh, <laughs> no, it's, it's as, a strawberry on your robe. <laughs> there you go. As a former Vernon in Henry IV, Part One, I can't help but feel a little bit vindicated here. Yes. <laughs> because, you know, especially those two beautiful speeches that he has, especially that second one. Yeah. Um, about you know he's gonna have he's gonna be the most important thing ever and have this great you know redemption the responses cousin I think thou art enamored or whatever like yeah, yeah okay you just have a man crush like, <laughs> but no it's nobody seems to really have a neutral opinion about how Prince yeah. Henry V it's all very which means speak to his popularity at the time but yeah I was just rereading the Shakespeare's English King chapter on Henry V um, this afternoon before we started this. And it is um, fascinating to just sort of keep in mind in terms of the personal history that um, Hal, you know, obviously did not grow up believing that he was going to be the crown prince because his father usurped the throne when he was 12. So he was only the heir apparent from the age of 12 
but was incredibly active in the government of Ireland and Wales um, throughout his teenage years, spending a lot of them fighting Glendower, the amazing Welsh folk hero slash wizard slash maker of deals with devils, question mark, um, that <laughs> appears in uh, Henry IV part one and is talked about quite a lot in both Richard II and Henry IV part two. But he spent so much of his time uh, governing and learning about both military and administrative, had huge military and administrative responsibilities within the government. So that actually, as the, the author Peter Sacchio um, says at some point early in the chapter, there has rarely been uh, an heir that was that well-educated and well-prepared for the job of being king because he was such an active uh, member of the, of the government. So in a, in a certain way, you know, what, what, what is distinctive about Henry V is the fact that there were very few civil moments of civil unrest during his not that long reign, but that um, he was probably the most successful military mind ever to sit on the, the, um, the English throne. Uh, which is why he's popular, right? Not because he squashed civil wars, but because he invaded other countries. Hooray for imperialism. Yay. Anyway, um, there are some really interesting words in here that I just wanted to, to go through. One is crescive, which is a word I've never heard before, but I really like the sound of it <laughs> and it, it it I looked it up it means sort of growing and increasing and developing um but I I love that crescive what an interesting word um and then there's a lot of we've already gotten one of my favorites for those of you who've been with us before you know I'm, I have a sort of unnatural obsession with words in Shakespeare that begin with un um so unseen here um unhidden passages we've got a couple in the in the chorus the unraised spirits unworthy scaffold there's like always a sense of of yearning i think in those in those words that's really really palpable to me um anyway um zunum and esther did you have any sort of final thoughts about this scene before we transition to our um act one scene two well since i am reading the text from paper like i don't have all these lines memorized Standing next to Dunum, I would sometimes be sort of um, tempted to to sort of interact with her and and look toward her, and then I would lose my place in the text. Yeah. So I've decided I'm going to look at the, my text, yeah. and I will re interact with her audibly through my yeah. ears, not through my eyes. Wonderfully <laughs> so, theatrical you know, of you. Like that is exactly absolutely fine. Wonderful. Um, Andrew. Oh, yeah. I, um, first, what a novel experience to be standing next to someone while reading a play. Uh, the last <laughs> nine months have been such an isolating experience for, uh, for theater. So I, I uh, envy you that. Um, I was just going to say um, how, uh, or just point up that the scene ends, the scene you know, is very intellectual, very political. Uh, and yet then goes to kind of these meditations on growth and nature, but it ends with a very prosaic, um, oh gosh, it's that time we have to go <laughs> yeah. moment when Canterbury says, is it four o'clock? 
Um, and uh, I, I don't know why that tickled my fancy so much this time around, but um, <laughs> I enjoyed the the sudden contrast back into practical matters. Yeah, it's, it's time we have to run. It's amazing, like how quickly the um, the I, I I like to sort of outline the really strong images, and it's amazing. Like I have my my little light blue pen, and I put these sort of squares around images, and then near the end of the scene, all the images are gone. There's no more images. It's like entirely back to practical matters, um, which is which is quite fun. Um, and the I think, embassy mm. ambassador just keeps getting repeated and repeated. I think, oh, Izzy. Uh, yeah, sorry. Um, it's hard to see. Um, <laughs> I think that it's interesting. There are there is so much imagery in that scene, but compared to the prologue, it's it's so political. Like it's so it had it loses some of that imagery. And I've heard people yeah. say that um, you know that they think of this as a not as full of imagery, which is funny to me because all the things that stand up stand out to me are like the speeches that are so full of imagery but mm -hmm. um you can definitely see the difference because the the chorus the first that first speech sounds almost like Richard II-y in a way mm -hmm. uh, with imagery like you have all these um moments talking about thoughts and things which come up so much in Richard II and then you go to this place that it is not free from imagery or anything but it is such a contrast both in being political and with the kind of language that they're using. Absolutely, absolutely. I think that's wonderful that the connection between Richard II and Henry V is quite palpable. Um, uh, Hal as he's prince is constantly compared to Richard II. So it makes sense that these kind of things would keep appearing. Um, Sam Gilroy, who was our, our Prince Hal and our Henry IV part one, who's also very, very enamored of <laughs> Richard II, was pointing out that both, both Prince Hal and Richard II have very striking clock metaphors um, that are a little bit disturbing. Uh, the, the Richard II's one about uh, his eyes becoming watches and that his finger is pointing away the tears and the hours. And then Prince Hal, the first time we see him, his whole first speech is about why do you care about the time of the day, Falstaff? You know, unless hours were cups of sack and minutes capons. And it's a very different, but equally kind of weird and strange way of thinking about time. And, and maybe, a, maybe a convoluted is maybe the word I'm looking for. It's just a very strange notion about what time is and time is an image. Um, and I think, I think you're right, Izzy, that it's much more what maybe I would term lyrical imagery in this, in the first, in the prologue, just very sweeping, almost romantic imagery. And then we get to interesting images like um, uh, the hydra-headed willfulness, you know, the, these little things that kind of pop up um, that are much more about uh, sort of uh, personifying things that are a little bit more abstract in concept. Um, yeah. And the, the practic and theoric. I've never seen practic written that way before. <laughs> and I've also never seen the word practic. I've seen theoric and theory and practice, but not practic before. And I love that. And I want to um, in, put that into my daily conversation. But moving on, we get to um, Act 1, Scene 2, which I thought maybe we would sort of divide into 
two bits. The first bit is the very long part with everyone until the French ambassadors arrive. And that one of the longest speeches in Shakespeare, have fun with that, Esther, the, um, the Bishop of Canterbury's very famous, famous Salic Law speech, which is just extraordinary. So let us jump right in. And we have our first three sections, this first one until the attendant exits, I have entitled Where's Canterbury? Then we have um, Task, Our Thoughts, Until the Bishops Enter. And then we have Of Salic Law, Weasels and Honeybees for that bit until the French ambassador enters. Um, so have fun, everyone. Where is my gracious Lord of Canterbury? Not here in presence. Send for him, good uncle. Shall we call in the ambassador, my liege? Not yet, my cousin. We would be resolved before we hear him of some things of weight that task our thoughts concerning us and France. God and his angels guard your sacred throne and make you long becoming. Sure, we thank you. My learned Lord, we pray you to proceed and justly and religiously unfold why the law Salic that they have in France or should or should not bar us in our claim. And God forbid, my dear and faithful Lord, that you should fashion, rest, or bow your reading or nicely change your understanding soul with opening titles, miscreate, whose right suits not in native colors with the truth. For God doth know how many now in health shall drop their blood in approbation of what your reverence shall incite us to. Therefore take heed how you impawn our person, how you awake our sleeping sword of war. We charge you in the name of God, take heed. For never two such kingdoms did contend without much fall of blood, whose guiltless drops as every one a woe, a sore complaint against him whose wrongs gives edge unto the swords that make such waste in brief mortality. Under this conjuration, speak, my lord, for we will hear, note, and believe in heart that what you speak is in your conscience washed as pure as sin with baptism. Then hear me, gracious sovereign, and you peers that owe yourselves, your lives and services to this imperial throne. There is no bar to make against your highness claim to France, but this, which they produce from pheromone. In terum salicum mulieris ne succedent. No woman shall succeed in Salic land, which Salic land the French unjustly glossed to be the realm of France, and Pharamond, the founder of this law and female bar. Yet their own authors faithfully affirm that the land Salic is in Germany, between the floods of Saal and of Elbe, where Charles the Great having subdued the Saxons there left behind and settled certain French who, holding in disdain the German women for some dishonest manners of their life, established them this law to wit, no female should be inheritrix in Salic land, which Salic, as I said, twixt Elbe and Zal, is at this day in Germany called Meissen. Then doth it well appear the Salic law was not devised for the realm of France, 
nor did the French possess the Salic land until 401 and 20 years after the function of King Pharamond, idly supposed the founder of this law who died within the year of our redemption 426 and Charles the Great subdued the Saxons and did seat the French beyond the river Salle in the year 805. Besides, their writers say King Pepin, which deposed Childeric, did as heir general, being descended of Blithild, which was daughter to King Clothar, make claim and title to the crown of France. Hugh Capet also, who usurped the crown of Charles, the Duke of Lorraine, sole heir male of the true line and stock of Charles the Great, to find the title with some shows of truth, though in pure truth it was corrupt and not, conveyed himself as there to the Lady Lingar, daughter to Charlemagne, who was the son of to Louis the Emperor and Louis the son of Charles the Great. Also King Louis X, who was sole heir to the usurper Capet, could not keep quiet in his conscience, wearing the crown of France, till satisfied that fair Queen Isabel, his grandmother, was lineal of the Lady Ermengarde. Mm daughter to Charles, the foresaid Duke of Lorraine. By the which marriage, the line of Charles the Great was reunited to the crown of France. So that, as clear as is the summer sun, mm. King Pepin's title and Hugh Capet's claim, King Louis, his satisfaction, all appear to hold in right and title of the female. So do the kings of France unto this day, howbeit they would hold up this Salic law to bar your highness claiming from the female, and rather choose to hide them in a net than to amply embar their crooked titles usurped from you and your progenitors. May I with right and conscience make this claim? The sin upon my head, dread sovereign. For in the book of Numbers is it writ, when the man dies, let the inheritance descend unto the daughter. Gracious Lord, stand for your own, unwind your bloody flag, look back into your mighty ancestors. Go, dread Lord, to your great grandsire's tomb, from whom you claim, invoke his warlike spirit, and your great uncles, Edward, the Black Prince, who on the French ground played a tragedy, making defeat on the full power of France, whilst his most mighty father on a hill stood smiling to behold his lion's whelp forage in the blood of French nobility. Oh, noble English that could entertain with half their forces the full pride of France and let another half stand laughing by all out of work and cold for action. Awake remembrance of these valiant dead, and with your puissant arm renew their feats. You are the heir, you sit upon their throne. The blood and courage that renowned them runs in your veins, and my thrice puissant liege is in the very May morn of his youth. 
ripe for exploits and mighty enterprises. Your brother kings and monarchs of the earth do all expect that you should rouse yourself as did the former lions of your blood. They know your grace hath cause and means and might, so hath your highness. Never king of England had nobles richer and more loyal subjects whose hearts have left their bodies here in England and lie pavilioned in the fields of France. Oh, let their bodies follow, my dear liege, with bloods and sword and fire to win your right in aid whereof we of the spirituality will raise your highness such a mighty sum as never in the clergy at one time bring in to any of your ancestors. We must not only arm to invade the French, but lay down our proportions to defend against the Scot who will make road upon us with all advantages. They of those marches, gracious sovereign, shall be a wall sufficient to defend our inland from the pilfering borders. We do not mean the coursing snatchers only, but fear the main intendment of the Scot, who hath been still a giddy neighbor to us. For you shall read that my great-grandfather never went with his forces into France, but that the Scot, on his unfurnished kingdom, came pouring like the tide into a breach, with ample and brim fullness of his force, galled the gleaned lands with hot assays, girding with grievous siege castles and towns, that England, being empty of defense, hath shook and trembled at the ill neighborhood. She hath been then more feared than harmed, my liege, for hear her but exampled by herself, when all her chivalry hath been in France, and she a mourning widow of her nobles, she hath herself not only well defended, but taken and impounded as a stray the King of Scots, whom she did send to France to fill King Edward's fame with prisoner kings and make the chronicle as rich with praise as is the ooze and bottom of the sea with sunken wreck and sumless treasuries. But there is a saying very old and true, if that you will France win, then with Scotland first begin. For once the eagle, England being in prey, to her unguarded nest the weasel Scot comes sneaking, and so sucks her princely eggs, playing the mouse in absence of the cat to tame and havoc more than she can eat. It follows then the cat must stay at home, yet that is but a crushed necessity. Since we have locks to safeguard necessaries and pretty traps to catch the petty thieves, while that the armed hand doth fight abroad, the advised head defends itself at home. For government, though high, low, and lower, put into parts doth keep in one consent congreeing in a full and natural close, like music. Therefore doth heaven divide the state of man in diverse function, setting endeavor in continual motion, to which is fixed as an aim or but obedience. For so work the honeybees, creatures that by a rule in nature teach the act of order to a peopled kingdom. They have a king and officers of sorts, where some, like magistrates, correct at home, others, like merchants, venture trade abroad, 
others like soldiers armed in their stings make boot upon the summer's velvet buds, which pillage they with merry march bring home to the tent royal of their emperor, who busied in his majesty surveys the singing masons building roofs of gold, the civil citizens kneading up the honey, the poor mechanic porters crowding in their heavy burdens at his narrow gate, the sad-eyed justice with his surly hum, delivering o'er to executors pale the lazy, yawning drone. I this infer that many things, having full reference to one consent, may work contrariously, as many arrows, lucid several ways, may come to one mark. As many ways meet in one town, as many fresh streams meet in one salt sea, as many lines close in the dial center, so may a thousand actions once afoot end in one purpose and be all well-born without defeat. Therefore, to France, my liege, divide your happy England into four, whereof take you one quarter into France, and you withal shall make all Gallia shake. If we, with thrice such powers left at home, cannot defend our own doors from the dog, let us be worried, and our nation lose the name of hardiness and policy. Call in the messengers sent from the Dauphin. Now are we well resolved. And by God's help and yours, the noble sinews of our power, France being ours, we'll bend it to our awe, or break it all to pieces. Or there we'll sit, ruling in large and ample empery, or France and all her almost kingly dukedoms. Or lay these bones in an unworthy urn, tombless, with no remembrance over them. Either our history shall with full mouth speak freely of our acts, or else our grave, like Turkish mute, shall have a tongueless mouth, not worshipped with a waxen epitaph. Let's pause right there and just discuss the scene so far. So that last ending bit called sort of bending France. Um, wow, we just went through a hell of a lot of text. That was... Um, Bravo, Esther, that has got to be one of the longest speeches in, in Shakespeare. And I think one of the funnier ones as well. <laughs> like, it's just incredible. As, um, as the, they pointed out in the Shakespeare's English King, if you even try to explain what's being said in that speech, you start to sound exactly like that speech. Like there's something circular about, <laughs> about, um, about trying to sort of, pace through it but I thought you did a marvelous job um so my dear actors tell me about your experiences of 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 these characters so far we, we we've met um Canterbury and Ely um we just have met Exeter and Henry um it was interesting that we spent like a whole scene essentially kind of like talking about um like these people like Canterbury and like what side they're on but as soon as like we get to Exeter he just has one line and then you're like oh that's what side you're on like that's like a very different introduction of a character <laughs> and his thoughts or their thoughts um and also I just kept getting this image when Canterbury was going through that like crazy um explanation of why we should take France I just kept getting this like 
image of like an older man with like charts around him <laughs> and like books and like props and like constantly picking up the same prop just like going crazy I just like had that image and it was so funny to me yeah pulling down the map showing that oh and look in reference in reference 52 I've circled it here and this connects to over there and oh I love that I th <laughs> It's like a it's like a PowerPoint presentation. <laughs> and then they'll like go back a few slides to be like, remember, remember Charles the Great? We were talking about him. Let's flip through. Let's get to the end here. Totally. Oh my gosh. Oh <laughs> um, uh, had to read all of the material you sent about the history of this play in order to get through this line. Yes. <laughs> I thought you did a marvelous job. And also like you were, you got all of those. I looked up each of those, the names because they, they're, you know, they're either French or Latin or German, you know, and th there's just so many languages, extra languages going on. And you did it so well. Yeah. What was, what was your experience of sort of reading through this and, and, and as the character kind of finding your way through this kind of puzzled argument? <laughs> well, I have to say that having said that my character has a sort of a, an acquired pompousness about him because he's been an archbishop for a while, um, mm. or, or, you know, maybe not, he hasn't been an archbishop for very long, but he's been a man of the world with responsibilities and power for a while. Yeah. But at the same time, I found it very satisfying to work with Andrew because I felt that the um, the demeanor of King Henry really grounded me and made me in my within my pompousness um, made me feel that I was led by a proper king and ruled. In the first scene, I say a lot of nice things about him. In this scene, I actually experience those things, that strength, mm. um, even though he's just um, sort of going through his his courtly throne meeting, whatever. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's wonderful. You, you experience, I love that. That's a one, what a, what a great phrase. You experience those qualities in this scene. That's fantastic. I, I, I quite, I quite like this, this speech that precedes that very long uh, Archbishop of Canterbury um, speech. Andrew, can you um, uh, tell us about Henry, what your experiences of, of Henry so far, and in particular that, that speech where you're asking Canterbury's to sort of break, break down the argument for me. Right, right. Well, I can, I can say that coming into that speech after having heard uh, the previous scene with the archbishop and the bishop um, talking about Henry's nature, um, th that informed uh, the, the, uh, the feeling of this speech, um, you know, uh, um, so it's kind of like a, it's interesting that the two scenes are broken up like that because they really do have this rolling energy. Um, it's like, uh, it's like a single camera shot, you know, that follows, um, to use a film uh, analogy, that follows the, the two ecclesiasts from the uh, garden or wherever, the, the external place where they are, the waiting room, into the, the hall, the council hall. And uh, it really does have that energy of carrying through. And so the, the introduction of King Henry in the previous scene in that glowing language 
rolls right into this speech. And it is a, um, you know, I, I was thinking about the, uh, about uh, Henry IV part one that we were just reading and how the, the scenes that kind of um, sit in the court and are about what do we do next? Um, those scenes tend in that play to be kind of confrontational yeah. uh, between the characters and you get the sense of their multiple um, uh, sometimes opposing factions within uh, the court. In this one, uh, in this scene at least, we don't see any factionality. In yeah. fact, it's very um, ordered. Uh, the kingdom is in order in a sense. And the the arguments um, are put forward in this uh, measured, um, uh, rhetorical, uh, I guess, uh, this chain of reasoning that just rolls on and on and on. And I think Henry's speech asking for the, the dissertation on the Salic Law is <laughs> in that vein, too. It's... Um, it's talking about uh, the, the warning, which might have been in Henry the Fourth, uh, Part One, might have been uh, more pointed and more um, confrontational. Is the word that keeps coming back to mind. Here, it's uh, aspirational, almost. Um, yeah, you know, the people are going to die because of this, but we charge you in the name of God to to be careful what you say because of that. Um, not you better be careful what you say, yeah, because people are going to die. It's it's um, there's just this harmony that I that I'm surprised at. Yeah, I think I think that's a that's a great observation, and 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 this is of course you know one of the quietest realm, uh, quietest reigns in this time period of an English king. I mean, just incredibly stable when it comes to very little civil strife, very little ups and downs with domestic policy. Um, it was a pretty, it was a pretty loyalist time after a whole lot of, of civil uproar, um, all of course originating with the original sin of, of taking away Richard's crown by Henry's father, which as we see is still haunting Henry, this Henry. Um, in this play, we'll, we'll sort of encounter that a bit in Act 4 uh, when he's on the eve of the Battle of Agincourt and is sort of making his plea and kind of saying, look, I reinterred Richard. I pay poor people to pray for him every day. Like, I, I'll do more. Just, like, help me here. Um, it, it just seems to be this thing that we can't quite get off our back. Um, but I, I, I do also just love... The setup, you know, we get this almost two-page speech <laughs> and then ending with this one line, you know, like the, also the there's sort of two moments of humor, I think, for me. One is the, so that as clear as is the summer sun after this incredibly complicated and not very clear as the summer sun speech, you know, it's like, and then what follows that is even a little bit convoluted and, and difficult to sort of parse out each one of these people then it's sort of then it's sort of punctuated again it's the one-two comedy punch of the like okay so may I with right and conscience make this claim you know this this wonderful kind of one line response to about to like a 50 line speech is kind of I, I just I just love that 
that contrast. Um, yeah, and I could I could think of uh, a couple of real very clear ways that you could take that. Um, you know, there's a very there's a choice yeah. that it, to play it up for comedy, and that it's that it's about um, well, just get to the point. May I, with right and conscience, make this claim? Yeah. But there's also, uh, and I think that's a quite a legitimate uh, choice, and really could be very amusing. But in the flow of it, having heard the entirety of that speech, and and like I said, that chain of reasoning that maybe doesn't, um, the, the reason is less important than the way that it's delivered uh, yeah. in this relentless stream. In that, in that case, having gone through that experience of listening to all that, I felt as if the, it was almost, um, uh, it was almost an, a rhetorical response, a, um, mm. uh, 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 a ritual response. May I, with right and conscious conscience, make this claim? Just restating the the theme here, which to me was is interesting because when you read it, what I heard was okay. So now I've heard the right side that I do have the right to, can I do it? I, for some reason, heard conscience as a new question, almost, as mm, that after right, hearing right. all this, the, just the way that you read it made me think you were saying, okay, so I do have the right, can I make this claim in good conscience? Um, which is a different question, right? I think. Um, yeah. It's like, what is the... Is it illegal? Because right here is always tied up in legal arguments. So I have the legal right. Do I have the moral conscience to make this? Yeah. It is interesting because the archbishop is invoking um, scenes of battle yeah. as, as part of his argument, like the success of the black prince and stuff. But then he actually at one point really spells it out. I'm telling you to go out there and slaughter and hack. He says, with bloods and sword and mm. fire to win your right. So that's very, it does, it's very incongruous that a man of the church would speak on such terms. But Absolutely. he's like pushing him out the door. <laughs> go, 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 <laughs> go kill. Um, it, is, it is pretty amazing. Uh, a, a line that really stuck out for me, the way that you that you read that following speech, Esther, was the forage in blood of French nobility, which is such a kind of grotesque image of someone kind of like greedily sort of experimenting and kind of glutting oneself on the blood of French nobility. And of course, you're talking about something that happened in the past in that particular instance, but it seems to be like you're saying, repeat history, make this happen again. Um, which, as you say, is, is, is kind of um, shocking. <laughs> what I don't really understand is that if the archbishop is really happy with this king, why would he be so eager to see him go out mm. and really put his life on the line in open warfare? Yeah, um, that's a wonderful sure. question. <laughs> I don't know I mean, that I have an answer to that. On the throne, be any more likely to approve the bill or not about all their clergy wealth? And I don't know. 
That's that's true. I mean, so I guess the next person in line at this point, because Henry doesn't have any children, would be his his next brother, uh, Tom, um, uh, Thomas, the Duke of Clarence, um, who he's quite close to. But we don't he's not. It's interesting that he does not feature prominently in this play. Um, all of all of Henry's brothers kind of make appearances, but they're very, very brief appearances. But he did say, didn't he, in, in the first scene, the archbishop, that there was a, it, it seems that the king was more inclined to, uh, to side with the clergy than he was with the people who were bringing the bill up. So in that way, I think you're right. It's sort of like, what, what does the archbishop get out of this? My only inkling Maybe of an answer, I'm sorry, go ahead, please. Maybe he feels like if he fires up his enthusiasm for war, he will be more grateful for the money that the archbishop can offer him. That one, yes, I think, I think that is absolutely right. And I think that from some of your first lines, you know, this bill would have passed, but that the unquiet time pushed it out of question. And I wonder if there's a sense that you're creating a different kind of unquiet time with this sort of um, pushing towards war. Um, You know, I think there's there's a very, very famous shot of the archbishop and the bishop in the Ken Brenna, Henry V, where they're on either side of the throne sort of whispering this into his ear. And it's it's very iconic, kind of beautiful, but it's like he's sitting there in the throne and they're both just and then he sort of makes the decision. Um, But it's, 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 it's pretty clearly politically motivated in that. But I think that is such a good question. It's like, what is the motivation for this, for this war? How, how, do, how is this good? Um, having just worked on act four of King Henry IV part two um, yesterday, <laughs> where the dying King Henry IV is giving Hal his final counsel as he is on his deathbed, you know what uh he says this incredible line that gives me chills every time which is essentially busy giddy minds with foreign quarrels is his sort of dying advice is like don't let it be calm here you need to rally the country around a cause and we need to put their focus elsewhere that's how we unite a country and his idea had been to go on crusades, right? Henry IV's idea, but Henry V has some, some different ideas about, about this. But it is interesting how in these plays, uh, the church is constantly um, tied together with uh, violence and warfare in terms of the way powers overlap and the way that the clergy sometimes side against the king and sometimes side with the king. So it's, it's an interesting, confused time. Ooh, I, I definitely want to get into our next bit with the, the ambassador. And uh, one of my, I'm going to say this a lot, but this is uh, this coming up, the we are glad the Dauphin is so pleasant with us has got to be one of my new favorite speeches, having just read it quite a few times. I'm like, this is a sick speech. Um, So let's get right into it. Um, In comes the ambassadors of France um, with a message from not the king of France, but the Dauphin or the Dolphin, depending on, in in the folio, it says Dolphin. And it's a very anglicized version, obviously. And there are some sort of purists who are like, you can only ever say Dolphin. And it's like, okay, all right, let's all 
take down the temperature a little here. The Dauphin is the, or the Dolphin is the title of the eldest son of the King of France. And this was a title that uh, was an active title between, let's see, I wrote this down, 1349 to 1830. So this is kind of a very time-honored tradition in France. Um, wonderful. So have fun with the end of this, the scene of uh, dukedoms and tennis balls into its war. Now, are we well prepared to know the pleasure of our fair cousin, Dolphin? For we hear your greeting is from him, not from the king. May it please your majesty to give us leave freely to render what we have in charge. Or shall we sparingly show you far off the Dolphin's meaning? and our embassy. We are no tyrant, but a Christian king, unto whose grace our passion is as subject as is our wretches fettered in our prisons. Therefore, with frank and with uncurbed plainness, tell us the Dauphin's mind. Thus then, in few. Your Highness, lately sending into France, did claim some certain dukedoms in the right of your great predecessor, King Edward III, in answer of which claim, the prince, our master, says that you savor too much of your youth and bids you be advised. There's not in France that can be with a nimble galliard one. You cannot revel into dukedoms there. He therefore sends you, meter for your spirit, this turn of treasure, and in lieu of this, desires you let the dukedoms that you claim hear no more of you. This the dolphin speaks. What treasure, uncle? Tennis balls, my liege. Hmm. We are glad the dolphin is so pleasant with us. His present and your pains we thank you for. When we have matched our rackets to these balls, we will in France, by God's grace, play a set, shall strike his father's crown into the hazard. Tell him he hath made a match with such a wrangler that all the courts of France will be disturbed with chases, and we understand him well. How he comes o'er us with our wilder days, not measuring what use we made of them. We never valued this poor seat of England, and therefore living hence did give ourself to barbarous license, as tis ever common that men are merriest when they are from home. But tell the dolphin I will keep my state, be like a king, and show my sail of greatness when I do rouse me in my throne of France. For that I have laid by my majesty and plotted like a man for working days, but I will rise there with so full a glory that I will dazzle all the eyes of France, yea, strike the Dauphin blind to look on us. And tell the pleasant prince, this mock of his hath turned his balls to gunstones, and his soul shall stand sore charged for the wasteful vengeance that shall fly with them. For many a thousand widows shall this his mock mock out of their dear husbands, mock mothers from their sons, mock castles down, and some are yet ungotten and unborn that shall have cause to curse the dolphin's scorn. But this all lies within the will of God, to whom I do appeal, 
and in whose name tell you, the Dauphin, I am coming on to venge me as I may and to put forth my rightful hand in a well-hallowed cause. So get you hence in peace and tell the Dauphin his jest will savor but of shallow wit when thousands weep more than did laugh at it. Convey them with safe conduct. Fare you well. This was a merry message. We hope to make the sender blush at it. Therefore, my lords, omit no happy hour that may give furtherance to our expedition, for we have now no thought in us but France, save those to God that run before our business. Therefore, let our proportions for these wars be soon collected and all things thought upon that may with reasonable swiftness add more feathers to our wings. For God before will chide this dolphin at his father's door. Therefore, let every man now task his thought that this fair action may on foot be brought. Damn! <laughs> oh I would not want to be on the <laughs> receiving end of that speech. Like, what a great, what a great speech. Oh my God. <laughs> the repetition of mock yeah. becomes so kind of. I don't know, edgy, like just very, it's like, there's something so it's like watching something happen in slow motion. Like if you're like, Oh, he shouldn't have done it. You know, like it's just, it's, um, yeah. Wow. What a speech. Uh, it's a chance to, it's a chance to remind ourselves that this is the guy who did spend so many years in a tavern uh, playing hard knocks, yeah. um, robbing people, yeah. uh, <laughs> trading insults with Falstaff. Yeah. And he's like, oh, tennis balls? Oh, I got a whole mm. bunch of tennis humor to just like throw at you. <laughs> <laughs> like, I mean, it's just extraordinary. Like all these hazard and set and match and yeah. chases and like all this. He's like, oh, tennis? Oh, bring it. I, oh, I got this. <laughs> What uh, what would, I want to hear everyone's everyone's uh thoughts on this this sort of the the conclusion of Act One. I'm just like confused by the gall of France. Like send this. Like what? <laughs> like there, there's no there's no diplomacy in that. Even if yeah, like there's no. <laughs> you were just asking for a war like, at that point. Absolutely. I think that's a wonderful point, Nazo, that there's, there is such a tactlessness with this gesture. Um, and actually having just been reading about sort of the people that the, that the, the Dolphin Dauphin was hanging out with, the, the sort of Armagnac power in France at this time, they were not a very pleasant group of men they um they would frequently assassinate uh their rivals they were particularly violent and um very interesting i mean we're, we're gonna get some phenomenal scenes with the french nobles in in the ensuing acts where they're all sort of vying for who can be the sort of machoist macho man um but it is, I mean, I, I want to, Amy, I want to bring you into this. Like, can you imagine kind of being the ambassador who has to deliver this embassage? Like, <laughs> I, I hope you got I, well I, paid. <laughs> I, for, I, 
I kind of felt though that he was haughty himself and mm. I really got the feeling that the French had so much disdain for the English and especially for Harry yeah. that you know just go in there and yeah. tell him to cut it out yeah. and here you go you know you have no idea what you're doing get out of France and you know never raise your head again yeah. And so I was I was trying to think what the ambassador would do when, you know, um, he does his mock speech. And I think the ambassador would just take it head held high and turn around and walk out mm -hmm. and basically mm -hmm. tell the other ambassadors, you know, geez, these guys think they've got us. You've got to be kidding. Yeah. And, I, and so I, I just think that the French and we'll see this in 2-4, they're so above everybody else. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's horrible. They have no idea what's going to happen. So It is extraordinary. I mean, just looking at, you know, we'll get to the Battle of Agincourt, but yeah. they really had a bad day. Boy, did they have a bad day with Agincourt. I mean, they were, yeah. they, they, there is no reason that the English should have won that, that battle. No. Uh, from a military standpoint they were completely outnumbered but there were certain things like the field that the French were crossing it had been recently tilled so it was very loose wet soil it had just rained and these guys were just going down in the mud and the English just went by and were just like oh people down don't need to fight let's just cut all their throats I mean and then they had this incredible uh he sort of had this this group of infantry soldiers um, that were these archers that were the, this sort of cadre of these very highly trained archers that just devastated the, I mean, something like there were six, I think 6,000 soldiers at the battle of Agincourt and it, and quite an, quite a bit more French and the French casualties, 7,000 French died at the battle of Agincourt, yeah. which is, extraordinary number but yeah this is this is quite an introduction to the diplomacy of the French I think it's very important that there is a separation between the king and the crown prince right mm -hmm. that is important um, what is not mentioned at all in this play is that actually this king of France would suffer bouts of madness frequently and had to and then France was taken over by sort of regional governors and they would sort of it was a very cutthroat kind of uh, court because there was this instability at the top. So there was a lot of different factions, which we'll, we'll see uh, a few of those factions and how they sort of don't all get along with each other, much as we've seen with the sort of, um, as Andrew, you were saying, the sort of contentious behavior of the English nobles in the previous uh, history plays. We'll, we'll very much see that on the French side in terms of divided uh, ideas about how to best deal with the English. Um, I, I, read something, I read something that they were talking about the French in this play and that the only two that were really kind of nice people were Catherine and Mountjoy. And we'll see Mountjoy later on, you know, at the battle. He's like the ambassador that comes you know, for the, for the king and such. But I, I thought that was really, it was like, oh, but there's two good ones. You know, you'll see. <laughs> they were written you'll well. You'll see, they're real nice. <laughs> yeah. 
And let's not forget Alice, <laughs> right, yeah. Colin? Because <laughs> she's, I love her. I think she's amazing. Um, there, it's just, it is, it is, it does seem to me though, this section that we just read to be a very different feeling from the, the first part. And I was just wondering if, if anyone wanted to sort of comment on, on, on that, the difference between the sort of first half with the, with the archbishop and the bishops, and then the second half with the ambassadors. The only uh, one thing that kind of occurs to me is that perhaps the, um, the obvious reason why in this play, he keeps the contention absent from the English is so that the enemy of mm. the French can be uh, much more other, much more an enemy and much more clear. Uh, and so that the first half of the scene almost sets up that deliberative, um, deliberative but uh, aligned, well-aligned and well-ordered kingdom of England so that it can roll to, as one towards the French as a, as a war machine and as a weapon, uh, both physically and rhetorically. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Yeah. I also just wanted to, um, I loved Esther, your, the Canterbury Bee speech. I just definitely wanted to, to give a shout out to that wonderful bee speech. They really had it down, didn't they, about how bees work. They just messed up and it's a queen, not a king at the top. But uh, other than that, they really got it down. <laughs> um, and I, I, and also having just read that um, Henry IV, it's also a, a, a talk about bees. There's a whole bit about bees at the end of Henry IV's life. Um, yeah, go ahead, please. Well, I think it's really hilarious because the whole um, question talks about if if women can be vehicles of inheritance, and now you've just disinherited the queen bee, calling her a king. Yes. <laughs> exactly. I, oh, I, don't know if they actually, I don't know if Shakespeare actually knew that it's a queen, um, yeah. or if that was intentional. Yeah, no, I love that. I, I think that's so right. I also um, wanted to point out this word inheritrix, which I've never heard, but I want to now use continually. Um, inheritrix. It's like Bellatrix Lestrange had an inheritance. She's the inheritrix. Um, it's just such a freaking cool name. I also wanted just a, a, a very um, nerdy thing of me to, to, to note that each time the archbishop ends his line with female, it's a feminine ending which I, I quite like that, that each one of those, a feminine ending just meaning that there's an extra syllable tacked on to the end. But each time he says female, it's a feminine ending, which, which I just quite like um, all of those little sort of in, in jokes. But um, it, I, it, did anyone have any sort of sweeping or final thoughts about um, this act one, which is a relatively short actually in consider, considering some other Act ones of plays that we've looked at, um, but were there any sort of final thoughts? Well, you had feelings? mentioned that you really, you had mentioned that you really found that sometimes it's very powerful in Shakespeare when a character has an intimate moment um, or a very personal moment in public, and when King Henry says, "We are glad the Dauphin is so pleasant with us," he has just been royally insulted. Yeah. in public, like really badly insulted. And 
as king, he now has to have a comeback. And he does because he's so used to, you know, taverns and brawls or whatever. He comes back very well. But I think it is um, definitely a very personal moment of rage or whatever it is of, of having been insulted in public. Yes, that's a wonderful thought. It is kind of his first test, isn't it, uh, uh, in the play of sort of how is he going to respond to this? And, and as always with diplomacy, it really seems to be about status games and, and who is going to leave the situation with higher status, which I think arguably he very much does leave this, the, this situation with higher status just because it's such a confident um, and kind of devastating response uh, to not a terribly good joke <laughs> by the Dauphin. Um, and, and just to, to contextualize that tennis was also seen as a very low um, entertainment until Henry VIII was very fond of it and it became very popular and very aristocratic, but that its origins were definitely not aristocratic. Although the theater in France has to thank, the, the history of theater in France has to thank tennis courts because that is where after uh, theaters became less attached to the church, that was where the first plays were performed, were in these tennis courts, which is, and it's an, a, a, you know, one of the reasons that tennis court theater or traverse, staging in traverse is still a thing. But I thought I would just throw in that little fun theater history. Thank you all so very much.